0: welcome everyone so we should begin by acknowledging that we're gathered today on the land of the first and continuing custodians of Melbourne the Wurundjeri and Boon of the Kulin nation I offer respect to their elders past present and emerging and through them to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people welcome everyone so we're here to discuss the value of research in the humanities the humanities embrace among other disciplines, philosophy, history, literature, art, music, religious studies, media studies, the study of modern classical and material culture, linguistics, and languages. Broadly speaking, to use a definition that Helen Small recently advanced, and I should say that I'm drawing on Small's excellent work fairly liberally in my opening remarks, these humanities disciplines study and I quote the the meaning-making practices of human culture, past and present, focusing on interpretation and critical evaluation, primarily in terms of the individual response and with an ineliminable element of subjectivity. Of course, uh, as Small goes on to argue, someone trained in the humanities on hearing this definition will immediately turn a critical eye on the words, meaning, culture, individual, subjectivity, and probably interpretation and evaluation too. And had she worked with some of my colleagues in philosophy, Small might also have noted that some humanities scholars, at least, would be interested to critically critically interrogate most of the other terms in this definition as well, such as practices, human, past and present, and even why not, uh, this little word, and. So, what is the value of research in the humanities? It might be said that the value of research in the humanities lies partly in this critical function I've just alluded to. The unexamined life, as Socrates claims in the Apology, is not worth living. And not just the unexamined individual life, but our collective life as well, with all of its historical baggage. Research in the humanities then on this Socratic model would have a kind of gadfly function, stinging us into the act of critically interrogating engaging in debate around, and sometimes transforming the ideas, beliefs, and values which structure and guide our individual, social, and political lives. In this era of online echo chambers and fake news, Martha Nussbaum's argument seems particularly relevant. A diverse liberal democratic society that wishes to be or to remain healthy needs the gadfly that is the humanities. But we needn't claim a single overarching value as the only value of the humanities. We can be pluralists about the value of research in the humanities, as the range of approaches that our speakers are going to take to the issue will demonstrate. Perhaps the one thing we should not do, in fact, is to understand value in too narrow or exclusive a sense. Indeed, research in the humanities is often enough not focused on the critical function I've just mentioned, and so its value cannot reside in critique alone. Research in the humanities is often descriptive, appreciative, imaginative, or speculative, and so the value of such work might lie, for example, in the way it aids the preservation and curation of human culture, the transformation of culture, perhaps, and tolerance and understanding between diverse cultures. Alongside its social, political, and cultural value, It's also true that some humanities research has economic value, measurable in terms of the contribution that cultural and creative activity makes to GDP. Contributions via publishing and book sales, visitors to museums and the theatre, tourism related to heritage sites and so on. But we might also consider the way that the design of new marketable technologies depends on the work of humanities researchers such as philosophers who contribute to the development of codes of ethics for human-robot interaction, for example, or the use of new medical technologies. Finally, at the other end of the spectrum of values, it might be argued that the value of research in the humanities lies precisely in the way it resists instrumental evaluation, particularly of the economic kind. Humanities research, according to the strong version of this argument, at least, and in some sense of this word use, uh, the humanities is useless. But far from a fault, this is precisely where its value lies on this argument. There is much, much more to a worthwhile human life than one's contribution to the market, and so there's much more to humanities research than its economic utility. Or again, to pursue a slightly weaker claim Humanities humanities research can put pressure on everyday understandings of utility. It can deepen or transform our understanding of what is good and how we might attain it. Of course, this anti-instrumentalist approach to value is perhaps not the most strategic one for humanities researchers to pursue today in this climate of pub tests and ministerial veto power in relation to ARC recommendations for research funding. Nevertheless, there's also the risk that if we pursue the argument for the economic value of humanities in too exclusive a fashion, we'll undermine much of what's distinctive about work in the humanities. And in any case, there's no reason why such an anti-instrumentalist argument for the humanities cannot sit alongside others, for the value of research in the humanities is as multidimensional as the human world it studies and in which we live. But you don't have to take my word for it. So we have here tonight a distinguished panel of speakers, each of whom is going to present a case for the value of humanities research. So the order of proceedings is as follows. Uh, Each of our panellists will have up to seven minutes to speak to the topic of the value of research in the humanities. We'll then have around 30 minutes for discussion, and uh, during this time I'll be able to take some questions from the floor. Finally, each panellist will have two to three minutes for a final word, uh, except for Professor Joy De who, and as I think is fitting for the current president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, uh, Professor De will have an extra few minutes for the final final word uh, before I bring the forum to a close. Before I bring the forum to a close. So our first speaker then is Professor Aaron Russell. Um, Professor Russell does not work in the humanities, but I'm very grateful for his presence here tonight and his willingness to bring his perspective to the issue. Professor Russell is Pro Vice Chancellor of Research Development and Integrity and currently the Acting Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at Deakin University. His portfolio is responsible for the development and implementation of initiatives to enhance research training, professional development, and research integrity for high degree research students, postdoctoral research fellows, and academics. His previous roles include Associate Head of the School of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences Research as well as the School and Faculty of Health Higher degree research coordinator. He previously held the National Health and Medical Research Council Career Development Fellowship, and he leads a research team investigating the molecular factors controlling skeletal muscle wasting, growth and regeneration with exercise and disease. Uh, So please join me in welcoming Professor Russell.
1: Thanks, everyone, for um, turning up tonight and for the opportunity, Sean, to speak. And I'm really glad that you uh, highlighted the fact that I'm not in the humanities space. And, in fact, it's quite embarrassing for me to be up on this stage because I am, by a long shot, the least qualified to be actually amongst the speakers and you in the audience. Um, I was really excited about taking up the chance to speak with you because I do come from a very different background, one of um, fundamental molecular biology. And having lived through... Uh, the last 20 years where funding has changed, fields have been critiqued from different perspectives, challenges have been thrown at us. I I was really interested to be able to give some of my perspectives, but also on the role that I've held the last couple of years, it's um, provided me with a great opportunity to understand more diverse aspects of research, so those out of the STEM-based fields and, and working with some really great, great people in the area of the humanities and being responsible for helping them to develop um, the research strategies and their um, emerging researchers. So I'll be giving you a bit of an overview, uh, well in fact I was requested by Sean, about um, where I think the role of humanities research sits in a modern university, um, particularly in Deakin. This is not a Deakin uh, approach, it's my perspective, Okay, I need to, to clarify that in case I get in trouble, and also to uh, comment on some of the, the challenges that um, the field may be facing. So from my perspective, a, a strong humanities research program, and I think we also need to mention a strong learning and teaching program, it's essential for a modern day university, especially one like, like Deakin, um, a comprehensive university, in order for it to remain re- uh, relevant and sustainable in the current um, society that we actually live and work in. And in fact, the development and the performance of high quality research within all disciplines, so not just the humanities, is its a key driver for attracting high quality staff that are essential for attracting high quality students that are more essential for doing the high quality research because most of our staff have reasonably high teaching loads and it's the the attraction of not only the undergraduate students it's high quality postgraduate students and high quality research students so the phd students and and where the latter actually contribute to most of our our research now in saying that we also have undergraduate students that are, are essential for providing a little bit of our bottom line to contribute to research so combined there's this virtuous cycle where the quality of one will affect the quality of of the other and in, in a comprehensive university there can't be a weak link so the humanities must be strong science and technology must be strong business and law must be strong health must be strong now the quality of humanities research at Deakin can't be underestimated and hasn't gone unnoticed by, by many of the senior leadership group. And in fact, if you, if you look at the latest uh, era rankings, Excellence in Research Australia from 2018, Deakin's really excelled. And that's something that we're very proud of to the extent that it's the only university that's had five disciplines that have moved into above world standard from the previous 2015. And that places Deakin nationally in ninth position in hash research and that's a fantastic achievement that's required or requires now the university to maintain its support and to build on that on that very very strong platform into the future um as sean mentioned it's, uh, as i was listening to you I've, you and i haven't coerced at all so there's going to be a few things i'm going to cut out of here because you've actually mentioned some of them um mostly the the importance of humanities research there's the intrinsic benefit there's the economic benefit that that you mentioned however as the research world becomes smaller and more interconnected research focused universities such as deakin and, and many others um, around the world are able to actually work on much larger research problems that actually impact society on a much greater level and to respond to these big questions requires a really efficient collaboration across all areas of research, from the STEM, clinical, through to the humanities. And personally, I think one of the most impactful and probably enduring aspects of humanities research is its influence on how it translates new knowledge that's been created, and how it's able to transform society and our culture. And without strong humanities, you're just going to get a lot of research that's being done for the benefit of the researchers, and it's not going to be implemented into, the, into society. And at the end of the day, that's actually why we do research. So from a university like Deakin, where for staff who may be here and students, our previous vice chancellor was very, was very big on the phrase, you know, Deakins uh, has an impact um, and a priority for the communities that it serves. So this approach of answering big questions through collaboration from all aspects is really, really important. Another aspect that Sean asked me to, to mention were potential challenges with investing in humanities research. you mentioned the uh, the bizarre incident with the ARC recently and and that was felt by those in the STEM field as well because when you start making certain decisions that were made, it ends up potentially affecting all research across the board. So I think like all areas of research within various phases, of research, various periods in time, various governments, various flavours of the month. A dilemma will always lie in how the value of given research, and, and for today the humanities, how it's actually expressed to those key stakeholders who actually fund the research and potentially consume the research that's being developed. There's more scrutiny now from people who pull the purse strings, the policyholders, and there's also more scrutiny from the general public with respect to the benefits that all types of research give them. So maybe consideration into how the message is being delivered, I think is important. Uh, there are uh, multiple benefits from the the, the intrinsic importance. Of it's important to do humanities research, the economic side of things, but also the much broader impact that the humanities have, especially when combined with other fields of research that can't do quality stuff without the humanities. And if you look back to, to my experience about 20 years ago, were emerging into the fundamental molecular biology research, which it was reasonably not easy, but easier to get funding because it was new, it was novel. But very quickly, it was scrutinised because the question about the impact of society came up. And a lot of the researchers struggled to articulate that. And they were required to think differently about their approaches, their models, who they were working with, but also the message that they were giving uh, in order to to pitch the relevance of and the potential impact of of their work. And I think this is maybe something that the the HASS community is probably doing and maybe should be doing. Um, So if one of the major challenges of humanities research is to get the message heard and understood by the right people, it's going to require very strong and sustained vocal support from key international leaders, many of them here, uh, policymakers, but I think more importantly, people who work in universities such as Deakin, in order to, to get the message across and provide continual support. And on that note, thank you.
0: Uh, so our next speaker is Professor Joy Demusi, who's the current president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, as I've mentioned. But she's also Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow and Chief Investigator for the Future Humanities Workforce Project. She's currently Professor of History in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne and former chair of the University's Research Higher Degrees Committee. She's served as the inaugural head of the School of Historical Studies the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Arts, and the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Melbourne, as well as the Chair of the Humanities and Creative Arts Panels at the Australian Research Council, College of Experts, and ERA. Her areas of research and publication include memory and the history of emotions, the history of child refugees, humanitarianism, and internationalism from 1920. Please join me in welcoming Professor Demosian.
2: Thank you, Sean. Um, What a great privilege it is to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation um, and thanks, everyone, for coming. It's a very vital issue, this one. I could speak endlessly about my own discipline, which is history, uh, and the value of history to us in our lives today, but uh, that is not my brief. Um, I'm going to tackle this topic in a slightly different way. So, in answer to the question posed in this forum, who needs the humanities, I would suggest we all do, and desperately and urgently so. In looking at the value of humanities research, I wanted today to consider two aspects relating to this, um, to the vital importance of humanities to the future workforce. That's my angle today. So the first aspect is the value I want to look at of research skills that humanities offer in the wider world of work. And second of all, the insights humanities research can bring as we embark on the changing technological landscape of artificial intelligence and the fourth industrial revolution. So first of all, to my first point, uh, the humanities research skill set that relates to the workforce. There have been many reports in Australia and overseas which have highlighted skills gained through studying arts and humanities, and these have led to high-level debates about the value of these skills to the individual, to society, and of course, as we've heard as well, to the economy. So, I'm involved in one such report called the Future Humanities Workforce, which has been led by the Australian Academy of the Humanities and is funded by the Australian Research Council to look at the contribution, amongst other things, of the humanities workforce in Australia. So, what our and other reports um, overseas have indicated is that the demand is growing for individuals to be equipped with higher level skills, which they can uh, deploy in different contexts, whether in a career which may... uh, across many sectors of employment, or within a research community, which is increasingly becoming interdisciplinary. Improving the skills base is is crucial to increasing productivity and meeting the challenges of a constantly changing workforce. So when we're looking at the value of humanities research, one way to look at it is in terms of the research skill set and its value. So what is this skill set? So this core of skills, I think, is shared by undergraduates and postgraduate students, early career researchers, and the level of proficiency changes as individuals become more advanced in their study. Research skills in the humanities are framed framed around six core elements and values. First, communication, a clear, coherent explanation and description. that that skill set um, presenting that Um, pervasive arguments underpinned by evidence using diplomacy and negotiation, respecting others' views. Second of all, conducting research itself and collecting evidence, formatting a research question and determining the evidence needed to answer the question, locating and retrieving textual, numerical and visual information from existing sources. Third and crucially, analysing. Come back to this. Analysis, assessing what the evidence might mean, recognising where it is incomplete, ambiguous and unreliable. Evaluating findings to come to a conclusion, taking into account different perspectives and evaluating the complexity of the material. Critical thinking, of course, is at the heart and reflection on take-it-for-granted answers and assumptions to problems and value assumptions. Fourth, decision-making, establishing criteria and evaluating evidence against it. Fifth, problem-solving, applying knowledge to find solutions in a creative and innovative way. And finally, adaptability and creativity, a willingness to try different approaches, being open and receptive to new ideas. So humanities graduates and researchers participate in and contribute to civil society, drawing on their understanding of the human dimension of the society. Engagement with the arts and culture helps individuals understand themselves and their lives and appreciate the diversity of human experiences and cultures. And for these reasons, the humanities are valued in a wide range of professions, not necessarily dependent on the specific knowledge of the subject they have studied. Their strong generic skills and flexibility mean that they're able to adapt, uh, able to adjust to the uh, requirements of work in many different areas. And others, of course, go on to specialist employment routes, which are vital to society, or go on to become the next generation of researchers, enabling the disciplines to continue to contribute to the cultural, social and economic health, wealth and reputation of Australia. It is vital that this this distinctive contribution continues to be recognised and valued. Many employees, such as the banks, corporations and a range of industries, have publicly recognised the high value and centrality of these skills in the future workforce. One crucial aspect which humanities researchers bring is an understanding of the human consequences of developments, and I think this is really important in understanding the distinctive contribution. We, you know, looking at human consequences of various developments such as artificial intelligence which can be used to shape the legal, moral and ethical frameworks which need to be created as part of the new digital age. And this takes me to my second point, the contribution and analysis of humanities research to the changing workforce such as AI and the human impact of these developments. So this week, some of you may be aware that a very timely report was released by the four academies called The Effective and Ethical Development of Artificial Intelligence, An Opportunity to Improve Our Well-Being. A humanities-based analysis is at the very heart of this investigation into AI. And what does this mean precisely? Here I think we can see the true value of a humanities uh, examination. So in the report, which I recommend highly to you, um, it looks not only at the scientific and technological aspects of AI, but explores questions such as human rights, equity, and access to technology, inclusion, and questions such as the right to work, a fundamental human right. So for example, many claim that AI will transform the tasks involved in work, create new roles, and establish new skill sets. But the consequences of widespread automation are likely to be different for men and for women with implications for socioeconomic equality and the uh, the global gender gap we can look at other issues such as the right to privacy and the issue of surveillance human rights it is argued in the report provides a framework by which to approach the safe fair and ethical implementation of ai technologies Biases in algorithmic uh, decision-making tools carries the risk of amplifying discrimination and problems of fairness arise herein. There is a widespread belief that algorithmic decision-making tools are more objective because they are less biased than human decision-makers. Such assertions imply that legal protection against unfair discrimination might not be relevant to objective algorithmic decision-making. Human prejudice and algorithmic bias differ in character, but both are capable of generating grossly unfair and discriminatory decisions. Tackling this problem will be particularly challenging owing to the contested nature of fairness and discrimination in technology, but humanity's analysis leads the way. And finally, it's argued that AI will depend on the confidence that society places in the technology. The issue of trust in AI systems raises a number of definitional problems, including trust that the algorithms will produce the desired output, trust in the values underpinning the system, trust in the way data in the system are protected and secured, and trust that the system has been developed for the good of all stakeholders stakeholders such questions of trust take users far beyond the simpler matter of whether they believe in the technology uh, that the technology works it also opens up the matter of ethics and so on and so forth my point here is that all the core skills that i outlined earlier are, are fundamental to a humanities researcher we can see applied in ample measure here to the critique analysis and the understanding of for example ai and in so doing promoting a future based on a cohesive and ethical culture and society in the mindset in in the midst of radical and transformative technological change thank you
0: Thanks Professor De Musi. and on behalf of everyone here too, thank you so much for your energy and uh, recent advocacy on behalf of the humanities. It's much appreciated. So next speaker is Professor Robert Stern, who's Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sheffield, former president of the British Philosophical Association and recently elected fellow of the British Academy. He's well known for his work in the history of philosophy and in particular, in particular on 19th century German philosophy and especially Hegel. His interests in contemporary philosophy are in epistemolo- epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, and political philosophy, so most of what philosophy does. He's currently working on the Danish philosopher and theologian K.E. Lugstrøp, and also on the work of Martin Luther, viewed from a philosophical perspective. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Stone.
3: Thank you very much. And- as with the other speakers, let me thank you, Sean, for organising this and for the wonderful invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. So as Sean said, I have experience in advocacy for the humanities in the UK as president of the British Philosophical Association, which campaigns for philosophy, and I'm also the chair of the philosophy sub-panel for our research excellence framework assessment exercise. I think the forerunner of your ERA, and I apologize for uh, lumbering you with that. I think you got the disease from us. Uh, And I've recently been elected to a fellow of the British Academy. So all those institutions, in some sense, work for the uh, promotion of the humanities. And I'd be happy to talk about any of these activities, But I thought in these brief remarks, I would instead reflect on three mistakes I think we can make in the way in which we often try to defend the humanities. The mistakes are getting caught in three traps when trying to um, put the case for the humanities. The three traps I have in mind are, first of all, the instrumental versus intrinsic value trap, then the part versus the whole trap, and then the progress trap. So starting with the instrumental versus intrinsic value trap. Debates in this area often leave the humanities struggling because they work with an assumption that there is a clear distinction between intrinsic and instrumental value. The sciences then offer themselves as of clear instrumental value in enabling us, for example, to live longer or with more material goods or with greater control of the environment and so on. The humanities then cannot compete directly with these claims to instrumental value, as they cannot obviously do any of these things. We do then get drawn into saying that the humanities have economic benefits, or give people transferable skills, for example. But while, often, uh, w- but while true, often this seems a bit lame, and not to capture what we really care about in our disciplines. The humanities, in response to this problem, instead then claim to have intrinsic value. But this then makes the humanities seem to be a kind of optional indulgence cut off from the kinds of things we need as human beings, like health, material goods, or environmental security. And so in a rather familiar way, the humanities seem to miss out in these debates and easily get sidelined. But suppose we argued instead, the central aim of the humanities is to help us understand the nature of the good human life. Not just good in the moral sense, but good in the general sense of a flourishing, successful human life, what the Greeks called eudaimonia. This makes the humanities instrumental in part, because by understanding what this good life is, we can then find out how to live it. But it also makes the humanities non-instrumentally valuable because they do not take for granted the end for which they are the means, as the sciences do, but question the nature of that end itself. And the sciences cannot replace the humanities in this area as the question of the good human life is a normative, value-laden issue, while the sciences are not engaged in the question of value. Once we've decided what the good life is, we can use science to help us get it. But we need humanities to help us decide what it is. Seen in this light, the humanities seem more fundamental than science, but in a way that connects to the human good in a different way, as telling us what that good is, rather than giving us a means to realize it. To take a simple example, What is the place of death in a good human life? How should the life of a human being end in a way that adds to the value of that life or does not detract from it? How much control should a human being have over the end of their life? It is hard to see how science could answer any of these questions, but many disciplines in the humanities offer answers, or at least ways of thinking about them, from history, to theology, to philosophy, to literary studies, to anthropology, and cultural studies. And it seems only when we have thought about the issues this way that science has anything to offer in delivering what we think is required in achieving the end that has been established by the humanities. So my first suggestion is that when we come to defend the humanities, we do not get drawn into assuming the instrumental intrinsic value contrast is a simple one. Turning now to a second trap, which is trying to defend the whole by the parts. What I mean by this is that I think few people would reject the value of whole areas of the humanities, such as English, history, philosophy, and so on. I don't think anyone is seriously proposing closing those things down. I think no one seriously would say we should not have these disciplines and that they lack value. But often the disciplines are not what are criticized, but individual research projects, such as taxation in Elizabethan England or the early works of Hegel. Taken on their own, it can seem problematic to justify these projects, which can seem recherche and a luxury. And this is then used as a way to cast doubt on the whole discipline. But this is a mistake, as within any complex system of inquiry, individual parts, when taken in isolation, can seem to lack value or significance. And the same will be true in science as well. For example, if one is investigating the flight path of the seagull or the physics physics of push-ups. I should say I got that one off the internet, so it may be fake news. But of course, these individual inquiries get their significance from being part of a wider whole. And it is that whole which we should be defending in its own terms not individual projects taken in isolation. And finally, a third trap, I think, is the question of progress. We are all familiar with the complaint that the humanities lack value because they do not make progress in the manner of the sciences. Why do we continue to fund and sponsor them if they are not getting anywhere? My own response to this is to introduce a hermeneutical idea here, the idea of interpretation. Take a text like Hamlet. This text obviously requires interpretation, and there are better and worse ways in which this can be done. But I don't think anyone would say that there will ever be a final interpretation of Hamlet, one account which surpasses all others, which represents the end of the interpretative line. This is because, of course, Hamlet is a complex text, open to many different readings. But on the other hand, this process of interpretation is not entirely open and unbounded. There are better and worse interpretations, and there is a discipline in inquiring into the text. No one, I think, would claim that because there is no final interpretation of Hamlet, we should view all such interpretations as worthless. By contrast, it does make sense to think that there might be a final science, which fully captures how the world works, into which all other accounts can be fitted. But this seems the role model for literary interpretation, but not in a way that devalues it. Now, it seems to me we can view the humanities in an analogous way. The humanities are investigating what might be called the human condition and offering different accounts and interpretations of it. It seems implausible to think that they could ever be fully finished or fi- that they, these interpretations could ever be fully finished or fitted together into one single story. But on the other hand, as in the Hamlet case, this does not seem to be a flaw in the method or approach but just what makes the humanities distinctive as a form of inquiry. So if this is right, we should avoid getting drawn into the progress trap, too. I've therefore suggested that in the context of these debates, there are three traps which we should avoid, but which we are often pushed into by the terms of these debates. First of all, instrumental versus intrinsic value. Secondly, judging the whole by its parts. And thirdly, the problem of progress. If we can challenge the assumptions underlying these traps, then that might perhaps be one way in which we can make headway in these discussions. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks very much, Professor Stern. Our next speaker is Dr. Emily Potter, uh, who is Senior Lecturer in Literary Studies and Associate Head of School Research for the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University. Her research focuses on the intersections of cultural production and environments. Her areas of expertise include literature and climate change, literature and placemaking, the biopolitics of water and consumption, urban design and poetic practice, Contemporary Australian literature and post colonial texts and environments. She's been a chief investigator on three Australian Research Council grants and a most recent monograph, Writing Belonging at the Millennium Notes from the Field of Settler Colonial Practice, is forthcoming with Intellect in late 2019. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Potter. <clears throat>
4: Uh, Thank you, Sean, and thank you, everyone, for coming along to hear what we all have to say about a field we all believe in. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So you've all heard the report, Um, unprecedented warming levels, tipping points for species extinction, teetering on the edge of ecological disaster and death. I'm opening with a positive. If there's one thing that the present moment might not seem to need, it's more talk, more stories about this unfolding catastrophe. We need, as the inspiring child activist Greta Thunberg, demands of us in the contemporary West action and now. Action and stories cannot be disconnected, though, and the humanities enable us to understand how this is so. Moreover, the knowledges and practices of humanities disciplines do not stand on the sideline of our current crisis. They are entangled within it. I am a literary studies scholar and a proud proponent of the humanities, but this doesn't mean I am uncritical of our field. Indeed, the humanities, more than ever, need self-reflexive practice. We need to interrogate what we do and why we do it, because the most pressing social and environmental justice issues of our time require us to do so. Beyond arguing for our relevance today, this is a case of recognizing the role we've played in current systems and understanding what we might do differently to change the world. My work in recent years has explored how storytelling practices, including textual and non-textual work, are active material forces with a profound influence on how we think about and create the reality in which we live. As people from non-Western viewpoints have long made clear, there are multiple realities that different living beings inhabit, often simultaneously. It is the insistence that there is only one, Western reality, with its normalized logic, structures and narratives that has fed our current crisis. To counter this, we need to decolonize our ways of thinking. A first step to this is the acknowledgement that stories are world-breaking as much as world-making. Australia was founded on a fiction, the fiction of Terra Nullius. This story gave justification to genocide and to ecocide. The fiction of a fallow land waiting for the taking meant that the settler colonial story could be laid down as the foundational narrative of this country. It undertook the work of resetting time and establishing, to draw on the insights of anthropologist Deborah Rose, a year zero from where the slate could be wiped clean and a new nation born. Its founding myths driven by contemporary imperial ideologies of extractivism and white entitlement with gold and soil and wealth for toil, as the national anthem goes, an abundance of nature's gifts ready for the taking. As Bruce Pascoe's landmark book Dark Emu has argued, the early colonisers were met everywhere with the evidence that this was no empty country and with a long history that preceded their arrival. Pascoe's close reading of explorer's journals, particularly Thomas Mitchell's, are an extraordinary insight into the narrative work required by the colonial project. Mitchell's stories are constantly torn between what he sees and what he wants to see and what he knows the colonial project needs him to see. Mitchell notes the organised practices of land management and farming amongst the Indigenous groups he meets during his his surveying travels in the 1830s and 40s. At the same time, the imperative to narrate the untouched land was unrelenting. He describes a beautiful plain, for instance, dropped in nature's careless haste. Yet the complicities of storytelling and colonial violence are not merely in the archives. They are alive and active. They weave through and continue to structure our literary culture today. A powerful account of literature's complicity in the colonial project is Andrew Andrew McCann's 2006 essay, The Literature of Extinction. Here he tracks the almost obsessive deployment of romantic poetics in earlier settler colonial Australian literature, notably the elegiac and the sublime. These modes were popularly mobilised in literary platforms throughout the 19th century to perform sorrowful laments of indigenous passing. Troublingly, McCann traces the endurance of these modes to more contemporary contexts, including the work of celebrated poet Judith Wright. Literary modes, forms and tropes carry ideologies. They communicate ways of seeing and thinking about the world that have profound implications. The idea of indigenous passing of a year zero that negates prior occupation and sovereignty continues to manifest in a multitude of poetic sites, including ones that structure our places. Think of our cities, their smooth facades and shiny surfaces, their linear forms and streamlined spaces speak spatially of modernity's privilege and of the ascendancy of its narratives that reaffirm this. Cities are made for economic efficiency and mobility. They centralize certain bodies and exclude others, and they repress the true ecology of of a place. The city wants some stories, and it disavows others. And it is not just literary scholars who can see this," writes urban planning scholar Leonie Sandercock. The way we narrate the city becomes constitutive of urban reality, affecting the choices we make and the ways we we then might act. In fact, literary scholars are not as attentive as they might be to the world-shaping role of stories. This is notably so even in the context of climate change, where the increased outpouring of literary narratives concerned with climate change has gained much attention. Having climate change as a theme of our literature is not enough. What we need are fundamental reappraisals of how literature supports the project of Western modernity that is currently threatening our globe, and what we might do differently in response. In part, this lies with a reassessment of the narrating subject that is familiar to storytelling in the West. This subject is so often a single narrative voice, internal with external reflections on the world outside, reaffirming human centricity, self-generated consciousness and the division between self and other and human and non-human. The novel emerged in the 18th century as a form that adhered to traditional humanist principles. Linear, contained, focusing on human action against a passive backdrop and privileging realist perspectives in which an observable world could be mapped and recounted with veracity by the human mind. These formal traditions resist the imperative to displace the Western sovereign subject from the center of our stories. They will always exclude or make fantastic other ways of being. Ways that we can no longer ignore, that we should never have ignored, and that need to become central to a reorientation re- of our stories towards more hopeful futures. As the great Wanyu writer Alexis Wright puts it, our planet is crying out for greater imagination. This imagination lies is in an account of stories such as Wright describes. For her, quote, stories involve all times and realities, the ancient and the new, the story within the story within the story, all connected, all unresolved. This is imagination that prioritizes relationships across the human and non-human world that refuses humanist privilege and the separation between fields of knowledge. It is also an imagination in which decentered humanism gives way to the equal recognition of humanness across cultural difference, to the role of non-human relations in constituting our humanness, and to the assertion of presence, multiple enduring presence rather than absence. Indigenous literary scholar and poet Evelyn Arulian makes this point when she writes, it is crucial that we do not allow literature to keep turning Indigenous land and people into ghosts. It is crucial that we may remain human in our homes, whatever might happen to them. Aurelian alludes here to the current and forthcoming dispossessions from climate change that are facing millions around the world, as much as to the dispossession on which Australia is founded. These pasts, ongoing and future dispossessions are deeply connected. In the face of this, we must denaturalise those ascendant structures and ways of imagining that have driven our ecological crisis and open up spaces for other ways of doing, being and narrating. To me, this is the value of the humanities at work, the capacity to critique, transform and to undertake constant dynamic reflection on what makes us, what connects us and how a more than human world can continue to thrive. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Potter. Uh, Our next speaker is Professor David Lowe, who's Chair in Contemporary History in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Deakin University. He was recently a SMOOTS Visiting Research Fellow at the University of Cambridge and will soon take up a position as Visiting Professor in Australian Studies at the Centre for Pacific and American Studies at the University of Tokyo. David is a co-founder of the Australian Policy and History Network and his research centers on cultural aspects of the history of international relations, including Australia's role in the world, and on remembering the legacies of modern wars and empires in comparative contexts. Please join me in welcoming Professor Lowe.
5: Thanks very much, Sean, and can I add my thanks to Sean also for organizing this very welcome gathering. Many things are demanded of the past. It features sometimes in the work of those who are making big decisions affecting our lives, including our politicians and policy makers. So I'm starting not with an instrumentalist bent, but with a human demand side of the equation, if you like. And I'm suggesting that this state-level engagement with history is both potent and in need of constant attention, even more so at a time of transformative communications and a time in which very big policy challenges face us. A current politician recently summed up the basics of compelling policy as storytelling plus statistics. Now, much of the low-hanging fruit in public policy is gone, so I'd I'd argue that we need very rich and powerful storytelling and and damn good statistics. In this context, just as politicians and policymakers need history, so do historians need to respond. For some time, the discipline of history was harnessed to the making of the modern nation-state. Most historians now welcome the ways in which their discipline has been uncoupled from the story of nation-building, and they demonstrate the benefits of this through the rich diversity of the questions they ask. But the modern state remains invested in historical storytelling through such measures as funding national archives and libraries, appointing official historians, and so on. The modern state has also generated important historical work. To hold up an international example, the German Institute für Zeitgeschichte, the Institute for Contemporary History, was established by the West German government after the Second World War with the mission to explain the phenomenon of Nazism to the German people. It's done this since then, and its historians provided testimony leading to convictions of Nazis involved in death camps in the famous Frankfurt-Auschwitz trials of the mid-1960s. An Australian example might be the Australian Human Rights Commission inquiry into the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, which produced of course the Bringing Them Home report in 1997. Now, however, however strong our sense of incompleteness might be when revisiting the recommendations of this report, there's little doubting their significance for exposing injustice, trying to find paths towards redress and establishing mechanisms for measuring what's happened since. So let me tease out this relationship between the modern state and history with quick references to three prime ministers and a policy conundrum. It's not a title likely to be picked up by Hollywood, I know, but still. Most world leaders invoke a sense of history for reasons of strengthening their legitimacy and authority. I know what you're thinking, but even the campaign to make America great again invited a blurred and malleable sense of the past in which romanticised greatness could be found. In Australia, we've watched watched Prime Ministers try to shape historical debates through their speeches, often with some success. John Howard managed to join dots very successfully between the Anzac legend and a modern rendering of mateship that was easily digested, mainstreamed, and an alternative to more critical ways of thinking about inclusion and exclusion in Australia's identity. Paul Keating, too, seized on Australia's military past to direct our attention away from Europe, away from the folds of empire to Papua New Guinea and the Kokoda Trail as the great campaign that defined our place in the world. It was defended without British help, and it was to Australia's north, where our destiny was best found, according to Keating. In different ways, Howard and Keating drew on history to bolster their leadership credentials and to shape conversations about who we are. Another prime minister, Britain's Tony Blair, provides a different and troubling example. Blair led new labor to victory with such a strong sense of the new that he didn't want to be held to account based on the old. In 2003, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and as part of the justification for the invasion of Iraq, Blair claimed that there had never been a time when a study of history provided so little instruction for the present day. In removing the recourse to precedents and judgments about the morality and effectiveness of government actions, he was trying to free himself from scrutiny. Historians and others rightly called him out at the time and reminded that he would be judged with reference to precedents. My policy case study is Australia's grappling with questions around nuclear energy. I've been interested in the recent debates stirred or revived about the potential for atomic power generation in Australia and also the implications of enriching uranium for possible use in weapons. It's a policy zone that's complex and with very high stakes. I wanted to see how our elected representatives at a national level dealt with the issue when they last looked at it in detail, which was at the end of 2006, a standing committee of parliament heard lots of submissions and produced a massive report around the same time that another report overseen by Ziggy Switkowski landed. Basically, the Standing Committee was upbeat about the logic of Australia's drawing on its plentiful supply of uranium to fuel power-generated plants that might be commissioned. commissioned. The report had a great title, Australia's Uranium, Greenhouse-Friendly Fuel for an Energy-Hungry World. Considering the formidable costs and the long lead time, the business case for nuclear energy was not quite conclusive, though, and they felt that it would be greatly strengthened if the government would, wait for it, put a price on carbon. What a radical idea. The Switkowski report reached similar conclusions. During its hearings, the standing committee heard from advocates and opponents of nuclear energy. One theme that stood out was the exasperation of nuclear power advocates with what they called the moral outrage and irrational fears of their opponents. Some went into detail about the poisoning of children's minds by school teachers and they recounted episodes of sending nuclear industry literature to schools only to have it sent back torn in half. What struck me in the report was the lack of consideration for the consequences of decades of secrecy surrounding Australia's earlier encounters with the atom. In 800 pages, there were hardly any references to the atomic testing of the 1950s and 60s, to the forced relocation of the Maralinga richer people, to the outstanding claims for compensation by Australian and British national servicemen who incurred high rates of cancer and other illnesses, to the McClellan Royal Commission report of 1985, hugely critical of the cavalier approach to safety or to the exhumation of around 22,000 deceased Australian infants and young without their parents' permission, testing their bones for the absorption of strontium-90. The history of Australia's relationship with the atom is not a pleasant story. Above all, the intense secrecy surrounding it, which still sees archival records being withdrawn from researchers this year, has built a reservoir of understandable anger and suspicions. Some of the teachers' resource kits do, indeed, tap into this heady mix. So thinking about the detailed investigations of 2006, and some of the more recent commentary too, it's hard to escape the conclusion that one of the biggest opportunities for constructive policy conversation on nuclear energy suffered and probably still suffers from the absence of historical awareness. I'll end on a note of disclosure. These above examples are the kinds chosen by a historian who yearns for full and brave policy conversations as a priority at this moment, and who values liberal democracy. Who, in addition to wanting dignity and respect accompanying citizenship, a robust sense of civil liberties and the common good, and checks and balances on the exercise of power, hopes also for policy leadership as a fundamental part of government. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Professor Lowe. Uh, our final final speaker is Dr. Miriam Bankowski, who is Senior Lecturer in Politics, and Director of the Bachelor of Politics, Philosophy and Economics at La Trobe University. She researches at the intersection of philosophy, political theory, and the history of economic and political thought. From 2013 to 2018, she was an ARC DECRA Fellow, and in 2017, she received the Australasian Association of Philosophies and at Bayer Prize for her work on economic envy. She's currently writing a manuscript entitled The Family, Ethics and Economics, An Unorthodox History, while also pursuing research on academic freedom. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Benkovsky.
6: So far we've had a very diverse panel, and it's with that diversity that I'm going to begin. I'll speak to three points today. The first is that... Amid the diverse accounts of the value of the humanities explored, uh, the, the value of the humanities research explored in this forum, everyone seems to agree on one central point: the value of humanities research is not reducible to the willingness of others to pay for it. Be that as it may, my second point is that the institutional battleground for determining the value of, the, of humanities research is increasingly formulated in precisely these terms. Show us the money, and then we'll know know that your research has value. My third point is that when the value of humanities research is reduced to willingness to pay, this has effects on what sort of research actually gets pursued. And this constitutes a covert Uh, a covert attack on academic freedom, the academic freedom of humanities researchers. It changes our relationship with our research. It compromises our freedom to choose what questions to research and how to research them. It compromises our right to produce public goods owned by no one by publishing and speaking publicly about them. Stakeholders with their own narrow interests are not always the best place to answer um, this part of the question, um, which Robert Stern has perceptively um, described as um, the goal of the humanities, to help us see what the good life, the good human life consists in. So this battleground over the values of the value of humanities research constitutes nothing less than a fight for our own academic freedom, even if it's rarely expressed in this form. So the first point, um, we've already seen. Uh, This forum has presented the value of humanities research in plural ways, but none are reducible to the monetary value. David Lowe and Emily Potter have identified the social value of the disciplinary content of many humanities projects. But when David Lowe says that a knowledge of the history of policy can produce better policy, and when Emily Potter says that climate change policy or other policy can be improved by world making um, understandings of how people and places interconnect. It's important to insist that neither of them are claiming that this knowledge and understanding only has value if people are willing to pay for it. And even when Joy De says that the very skills of humanities researchers have workforce value, she would no doubt acknowledge that many employers don't recognise the value of these skills, which is why her work is so important and that these skills actually have value in excess of what employers themselves might just so happen to pay. The virtue ethicist Martha Martha Nussbaum in her book, Not For Profit provides additional reasons to dismantle any link between value and willingness to pay. And she would have, um, uh, her her views would have resonated strongly with Robert Stearns today, um, who looks at the value of the humanities research as helping us to see what a good life um, consists in. She locates the value of humanities research in the pro-social effects that they have on f- on the flourishing of individuals and in their positive flow-on effects in creating citizens who can systematically, sympathetically, sorry, imagine their way into the predicaments of others. The irreducibility of the social, workforce, and cultural value of the humanities to the willingness of others to pay reflects that it's a kind of public good in the economic sense, which leaves it particularly vulnerable to being under-resourced. For economists, a public good doesn't just mean that something is good for society. It rather means that something is non-excludable, a lighthouse, for example, Um, A lighthouse cannot exclude boats from benefiting from its light source, even if the captains of the boats are not paying for the benefit. And a public good is also non-rivalrous, as economists put it. A lighthouse can permit many boats to benefit from its light source at the same time. Humanities research and culture, published and publicized in the public forum, are also non-excludable and non-rivalrous. We can't exclude those who are unwilling to pay from benefiting from its values. And there are benefits that can be enjoyed by many members of society at the same time. A cultural um, issue. Although mainstream economists agree that the public sector should fund advances in general knowledge, just as it funds lighthouses, they also agree that it's highly likely that the public sector will fail to pay the right amount for the right kind of things. Public goods are vulnerable goods. So the second point is that even though the value of humanity's research is not equivalent to the willingness of others to pay, we're constantly asked, aren't we, to justify what we do in precisely these terms. Show us the money. Incentives from government to increase external funding have basically coerced universities into demanding that humanities researchers fund their public good by themselves. Through mechanisms like the research block grants calculation methodology, the government now allocates its own research funding to universities based on how much of a proportion of external funding a university has been able to attract in relation to its peers. The idea is that... The government would only give your institution money to fund your research internally if you managed to secure external funding, either from government grant organisations like the Australian Research Council or from public sector tenders, and increasingly so industry grants and philanthropic requests. This basically constitutes a covert attack on academic freedom. This is my third point. Academic freedom is often defined as an institutional right afforded to you in your professional role. It's not freedom of speech or freedom of expression with which it's commonly confused in the public realm. It includes the right to choose what to research and how to research it, as well as the right to produce your research as a public good, publishing and publicizing it. So how is the academic freedom of humanities researchers undermined by funding agreements that identify its value with willingness to pay? first academic freedom is merely formal and not real if researchers lack resources. Virginia Woolf made a similar point with respect to the conditions of creativity. If women didn't write to the same degree as men, it was because they lacked, as she put it, money and a room of their own, a condition that now defines the experience of most humanities researchers. Last year, we saw the previous Uh, Minister for Education vetoed $4.2 million of ARC grants in the humanities, as we've previously discussed. The vetoed projects included research into cultural change, into the role of sport in responding to climate change, research into art and history, and its history at the interface of Christian and Muslim cultures at the Africa-Europe border, and studies of what strategies a traditionally industrial suburb uses to deal with industrial closure. And because we are less able to secure this sort of funding, which is then rewarded a second time by the research block grants calculation methodology, universities are now unwilling to resource our projects with internal funds either. And so instead, our teaching loads increase, our administrative burdens soar, we see the cross-subsidization of sciences using the money from teaching our humanities students. We are left with no money, no time, and no room of our own to ask and answer the questions that we think need to be answered for the public good. Not what stakeholders think with their narrow interests, but what we think. The very topics that humanities researchers are choosing to pursue is also changing. We are now forced to propose projects that direct our research towards those more narrow interests, public sector needs, Industry interests, and yes, they're important, but we shouldn't forget our, uh, the, the, the drive that Robert Stern and Martha Nussbaum have also been um, speaking about um, that lies at the heart of our role. Our work is increasingly bound by funding agreements to pose only certain types of questions. And sometimes we even face coercive pressures to discover only certain types of answers. So there are risks that ensue when the value of humanities research is reduced to willingness to pay. So the need to clarify the value of the humanities really cuts to the very heart of the role and function that universities should play. Who needs the humanities? Everyone who values the public good of research and academic freedom. And this is why the sciences supported the humanities researchers um, in the veto saga that we saw last year because they recognised that what was at stake here was a broader issue about the very nature of academic freedom with implications also for science and blue sky research. Thank you.